Our second Bible reading is Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Before we look at that Bible passage, please join me in praying for God to be with us. Let's bow our heads to pray. In John chapter 14, Jesus says to his disciples, I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. Lord Jesus, we want to claim that generous promise this morning. Please give us minds that easily understand your word and hearts that gladly receive it. Please do these things so that you may bring glory to the Father. Amen. Thirty years ago, the award-winning historian William Manchester made an eye-catching claim. Out of all the cultural changes swirling around America and the West in the late 20th century, he singled out one change for particular attention. Here's what he said. The erasure of distinctions between the sexes is not only the most striking issue of our time, it may be the most profound the race has ever confronted. I'll read that again. The erasure of distinctions between the sexes is not only the most striking issue of our time, it may be the most profound the race has ever confronted. William Manchester wrote those words in 1993, and since then, the erasing of the, of the distinction between the male sex and the female sex hasn't slowed down. That erasure has gathered speed. But the Bible very carefully distinguishes between men and women. According to the Bible, there are differences between men and women, and those differences aren't just biological. One of the areas of life 
where the distinction between men and women really matters is marriage. What we're going to learn today is that there are responsibilities that go with being a husband and different responsibilities that go with being a wife. If you're a single person here today, this Bible passage is for you too, because as we'll see, the husband-wife distinction mirrors the distinction between Christ and the church. Understanding the husband-wife distinction will help us gain a better grasp of our own relationship with Jesus Christ. There are three parts to this sermon, and the heading that I've chosen for each part is a statement lifted straight from the passage. That's not what I usually do, but I've done it with this sermon because the subject matter is so sensitive. And so I want to show you that what I'm saying comes from the Bible. My aim is to billboard what the Bible itself is saying. And one way to do that, and to show you that I'm trying to do that, is to use direct quotations from the passage as the headings for each part of the sermon. Here's our first heading, the husband is the head of the wife. There it is, at the start of verse 23. It's a direct quotation from the biblical text, the husband is the head of the wife. Some Bible commentators have tried to dial down the force of that statement. They've said that the, <coughs> the Greek word translated head doesn't necessarily have the sense of authoritative leader. But that claim has been answered. Wayne Grudem, co-author of a big book titled Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, has a persuasive answer. He says, I once looked up over 2,300 examples of the word head in ancient Greek. In these texts, the word is applied to many people in authority, but to none without authority. In the Greek-speaking world, to be the head of a group of people always meant to have authority over those people. <clears throat> There's another way in which people have tried to dial down the force of that statement, the husband is the head of the wife. The verse just before today's passage, chapter 5, verse 21, says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. If we had verses 18 through 21 of chapter 5 in front of us, we'd be able to see that Paul is talking about what it means to be filled by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. It means making melody to the Lord with your heart. That's from verse 19 of chapter 5. It means giving thanks to the Lord, to God. That's from verse 20. And lastly, it means submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's verse 21. Those are all ways or outcomes of being filled with the Spirit. And some people take hold of that last verse, verse 21, and argue that, yes, wives should submit to their husbands, but look, verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, submitting to one another 
since believers should submit to one another, sometimes the husband should submit to the wife. But when we follow the flow of Paul's thought, that argument doesn't hold up. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, acts as the headline for a long section on submission with different bullet points setting out who should submit to who. We've got the first bullet point in this passage. Wives should submit to husbands. If we had chapter 6 printed here, we'd see that Paul goes on to give further examples of submission. More bullet points. Children to parents. Servants to masters. So anyone who turns to verse 21 and says husbands and wives should submit to each other, well, they would have to say the same about Paul's next bullet point, parents and children. They would have to say that parents should submit to their children as much as children should submit to their parents. And that would be a very interesting experiment. One night I say to my two-year-old Solly, Solly, it's time for you to go to bed. Say, yes, Daddy. The next night he says to me, Daddy, it's time for you to go to bed. Say, yes, Solly. And off I go. That can't be Paul's meaning. Verse 21, submitting to one another is the headline principle that Paul then breaks down into bullet points showing who submits to who, wives to husbands, children to parents, servants to masters. Well, let's summarize what we've seen so far. When verse 23 says the husband is the head of the wife, it is saying that the husband has a leadership role in relation to his wife, which is why, verse 22, a wife should submit to her husband. Those conclusions are confirmed by Paul's references to Jesus in verses 22 and 24. Please stick with me for this next bit because I think it really clinches this important point. In verse 22, Paul says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So there's a connection between wives submitting to husbands and Christians submitting to Jesus Christ. Then in verse 24, Paul compares a husband's headship with the headship of Christ over the church. Verse 24 says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Neither of those verses means that the husband perfectly represents Christ or speaks for Christ, which is reassuring, since as every wife knows, husbands get things wrong whereas Jesus is never wrong. But those verses do show that leadership in marriage is real because the leadership of Jesus over his church is real. Leadership in marriage should be taken seriously because the leadership of Jesus over Christians should be taken very seriously. We spent rather a long time on this because it's all so different from the way people generally think about marriage in the 21st century West. If you have braces on your teeth 
as a child or a teenager, you may still have some kind of retaining wire on your teeth to make sure they don't slip back into their natural position. And it's like that with Christians and the culture all around us. We very easily slip back into the culture surrounding us, the worldview found all around us. We need the retaining wire of Scripture to keep our teeth in position, to keep our thinking and behaviour in the right position. And that's why it's vital to spend so much time circling around this first heading, this first statement taken directly from the text, the husband is the head of the wife. Without the retaining wire of scripture, we will slip back into marriage according to the 21st century West, with no place for a husband providing leadership for his wife. We need to keep the retaining wire of scripture firmly in place. That goes for every issue of life and faith, including this issue. Authority is needed in marriage because it gives us a way to break the tie, the one against one disagreement. When a husband and wife disagree about a decision they need to make, of course they'll try conversation first, listening carefully to one another. And that might lead to harmonious agreement. They might try postponing the decision for a few days while they pray. And that might lead to harmonious agreement. But sometimes, after prayer and conversation, it's still one against one. How will the tie be broken Verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife. At the start of the wonderful children's movie, How to Train Your Dragon, the hero Hiccup explains why his tribe of Vikings refused to leave their village despite being attacked by dragons again and again. He says, we're Vikings. We have stubbornness issues. Well, it's not just Vikings. The human race has stubbornness issues. Men and women have stubbornness issues. Husbands and wives have stubbornness issues. Sometimes we need a way to break the tie to be able to move forward. If a decision needs to be made, but the husband and wife disagree, Equal authority, shared authority, would leave them in their disagreement. Male headship gives married couples a God-ordained way to move forward. Let's press on to our next statement lifted directly from the passage, the second part of the sermon. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. You can see it in verse 28. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. In the original language of verse 28, that line is even stronger. Paul talks about husbands having an obligation to love their wives. Husbands are obligated 
to love their wives as their own bodies, it says in the original language. That's a more literal translation. So it's not optional, it's not a polite suggestion, it's an obligation. You've probably heard the expression, looking after number one, as a way of speaking about looking after yourself, taking care of yourself. And it's normal to look after number one. It's normal to buy food that you like instead of food that tastes awful. It's normal to take a hot shower instead of a freezing cold shower. It's normal to take it easy at the end of the day instead of working all hours. It's normal to sleep in a comfortable bed instead of on a lumpy couch. The person who does the second thing in each of those examples is an oddball. Paul isn't telling people off for caring for their own bodies. He expects that to happen. He says in verse 29, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. That's the normal thing to do, and it's not wrong. What Paul is saying to husbands is that what you do for yourself, you are obligated to do for your wife. If a husband doesn't love his wife in the same kind of way that he loves himself, he's not doing Christian leadership within marriage properly. You go to a corner store with a $20 note. You buy some milk and orange juice, collect your change, and walk out the store. Halfway home, you look at the banknotes in your hand. You expect to see a $10 note and perhaps a couple of ones because you paid with a $20 note, but the shopkeeper has given you $3 change. You've been short-changed. It's really annoying. Whether the shopkeeper did it on purpose or totally by accident, it's still annoying to be short-changed. Well, when a Christian wife isn't loved by her husband just as much as he loves himself, that wife is being short-changed. She's not getting what she ought to be getting from her husband. If you're a Christian husband here today, and I'm very aware that I am preaching to myself, as well as to the other Christian husbands here, you are obligated in the sight of God to look after your wife just as carefully as you look after, number one, yourself. Just as carefully. Well, this is the great answer to people who hear that Christian marriage involves male headship and they say that will lead to abuse. If you give a husband authority over his wife, he'll take advantage of her to get everything he wants, no matter the cost to her. That's the critique of Christian marriage, as set out in Ephesians chapter 5, our passage today. That's the critique of it, but it leaves verse 28 out of the equation, that critique. The husband is given headship with a purpose in view, with a command attached to love his wife just as much as he loves himself. When a Christian husband treats his wife abusively, that husband is not putting biblical teaching into practice. He's defying the Bible. An abusive Christian husband is rebelling against the plain teaching of the Bible, which you can see in verse 28. Husbands, 
should love their own wives as their own bodies. We've been thinking about the nature of love, the nature of it. It's about caring for the other person's well-being just as much as you care for yourself. But what's the, what's the goal of love, the aim of it? When a husband rightly seeks his wife's well-being, what kind of well-being should he be aiming for? Verse 27 can help us. In verse 27, Paul's talking about the end goal of Christ's love for the church. There's a parallel, as we've already seen, running throughout this passage between Christ's love for his church and a husband's love for his wife. And so we can look at the goal of Christ's love for guidance on the goal of marital love. Let's look down to verse 27. Paul says, so that he, Jesus, might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's Jesus' aim for the church. Splendid holiness, radiant moral purity. And it should also be a husband's aim for his wife. In his book, Married for God, Christopher Ash says, we who are husbands need to be beauticians, that is, to give ourselves in loving, serving leadership of our wives so that through our love they become even more beautiful inside. End quote. Thankfully, earlier in Ephesians, there's guidance for husbands on how best to beautify our wives spiritually. It's very simple. It's done by getting involved with a trustworthy local church. The local church is a spiritual beauty parlour. Here's chapter 4, verse 15, a verse we looked at earlier in our series on Ephesians. It says, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, Christ. And if you look at that verse about growing in Christ-likeness, it's found in the middle of a passage about the local church. Church is God's beauty parlor. It builds us up so that we grow towards Christ-likeness. And so a husband will beautify his wife by prioritizing involvement in a trustworthy gospel-preaching local church. There's leadership involved in that. A church needs to be chosen. Then it needs to be attended faithfully, ideally. Sunday after Sunday. That won't happen without a certain amount of leadership within marriage. It might not need to be the kind of leadership that breaks the tie. A husband and wife might be fully in agreement about everything to do with their local church involvement. But even then, there's still the leadership of setting an example, heading out for church with a smile instead of a groan. It's worth saying there is more to spiritual beautification than local church involvement alone. But if you read Ephesians 4 verses 1 through 16, I think you'll agree that it's an essential part of the beautifying process. We're still thinking about our second statement. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. We've thought about the nature of that love and the goal of it. And before we move on to the third core statement, we should think about the extent of that love. Please look down to verse 25, which says, Husbands, love your wives 
as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Paul is thinking of Jesus' death on the cross. That's when he gave himself up for the church. He could have avoided being arrested and put on trial and flogged and nailed to a cross. He could have avoided all those things, but he chose to endure them, to endure the pain and the shame of the cross. As he died, he was punished by his own father, and he chose to endure that too, because he was punished by the father for the sins of others, the sins of Christ's beloved people, the church. Jesus went through it all to save the church. Look at how Jesus is described in verse 23. The head of the church and its saviour. The head of the church and its saviour. The extent of Christ's love takes our breath away. But please don't forget the start of verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In that verse, Paul holds up Christ's self-sacrificial love as the model Christian husbands should follow. Male headship in Christian marriage calls for husbands to love their wives with a self-sacrificial love a love that chooses death if necessary, that the other might live. Just as Jesus chose death, that we might live. When the Titanic sank a hundred years ago on the 15th of April 1912, 80% of the men on board died. Whereas a similar proportion of the women, 75% of the women survived the sinking of the Titanic. It's a very significant difference. 80% of the men perished. 75% of the women were rescued and sailed on to New York City to disembark and live their lives. The reason for that huge difference is the women and children first policy that was used during the rescue. Women and children first. Women and children first. That policy was the product of a society shaped by Christian teaching, including Christian teaching on marriage. As we've seen, Jesus' leadership of the church, which led to his own death for the sake of the church, parallels male headship in marriage. So Christian teaching on marriage lay behind that policy used in the rescue operation on the Titanic. Women and children first. Men going to their deaths so that women, in many cases their wives, would live, just as Christ went to his death, so that many would live. It was the biblical teaching on marriage in practice. The husband is the head of the wife, verse 23. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Verse 28. Our third heading, like the first two, is lifted straight from the passage. The two shall become one flesh. You can see it in verse 31. It's a quote from Genesis chapter 2. The passage Zander read to us earlier. 
It's a very familiar line about marriage. The two shall become one flesh. It's about a man and a woman entering into marital union, the oneness of marriage. Just look at what Paul does with that familiar line about marriage in the next verse, verse 32. He says, this mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and his church and the church. In other words, the one flesh principle of human marriage is ultimately and most truly fulfilled in union with Christ. If you have put your trust in him, then you with the rest of his universal church have been joined to him. You've been made one with him. He has made you his bride. Christ has been spiritually united with his church. Genesis 2 verse 24, I think it is, is fulfilled most truly in the Christian's relationship with his or her saviour, the Lord Jesus. So if you're single here today with no plans to marry and you thought this passage may not have much to say to you, I'm happy to say you're mistaken. As a member of the church, Jesus himself has chosen you as his bride. He's made you fit for that astonishing relationship with himself, that eternal relationship with himself through the salvation we were thinking about a moment ago. Like the men dying in the North Atlantic in April 1912 so their wives could live, Jesus plunged into the dark cold waters of God's wrath that he might have you as his bride forever. In verses 25 through 27, it's as clear as, clear as can be that the church isn't beautiful before Christ dies for it. No, it's through his death that the church becomes lovely. Listen to this explanation. It's a, a quote from a British Christian leader named Vaughan Roberts. Jesus didn't come looking for perfect people. He would have found none. He knew our imperfections and our sins, and yet he came for us. And he knew that the only way that perfect holiness could come into intimate union with sinfulness and imperfection was if he died and gave himself up for our sin and took the penalty upon himself. It's an amazing story of gracious love." End quote. I wonder, do you sometimes ask yourself whether Jesus cherishes you? Do you ever ask yourself whether Jesus cherishes you? Well, if you're a Christian, and if you're not, you could become one, you could join his church today, but if you're a Christian, the answer to that cherish question is in verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. 
It's a verse for single people who belong to the church, a verse for wives and a verse for husbands. All of us can rejoice in the way that Jesus has cherished us and shown that he cherishes us. He's brought us into an eternal union with himself through his self-sacrificial love. Let's rejoice in his cherishing of us. And husbands, let's remember that we're obligated to imitate it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we kneel before you inwardly and give you great thanks for your love and the love shown by your Son as he chose death for us, that he might have us as his bride. We are so awed and astonished to be cherished by him, the Lord Jesus. We pray this thought would warm our hearts and stay with us. We pray, Father, that our relationship with your Son, Jesus, would keep getting sweeter. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.